Hi, this is Carolyn Nee Lachlan, your hostess with the mostest of From Paper to People podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 138, War Games Movie Review. I'm Chris McBride, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. You'll find me on Twitter at C. McBride, and Derek is on Twitter at Amaron underscore DM, and popgoesyourworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. Derek, what's going on in pop culture in your world, my friend? Hey, Chris. Uh, Well, this week in pop culture, I have found a new show that I've started binging. Oh, nice. So... It's a reality show, which is not usually my favorite genre, unless you count sports. Sports. uh, My brother always says that. People are like, do you watch reality shows? And he's like, yeah, I watch the original reality show, sports. So outside of that. um, Anyway, uh, the show uh, show that I've started watching on the recommendation of a few of my friends is called The Prophet. Have you ever heard of the show The Prophet? Never heard of it. Okay, let me ask you another question before we get into that. Mm-hmm. Have you ever watched or heard of a show called Bar Rescue that is on the Paramount Network oh, all the I've, time? I've seen it before. One afternoon it was on, I saw it. So, yeah, I'm a little familiar with that. Okay, so uh, let's start with Bar Rescue. So, Bar Rescue, the premise is um, a gentleman named John Taffer, who has experience in the bar and restaurant business, goes to a failing bar or restaurant and basically gives them a makeover. He, he identifies where their problem areas are and he helps them turn it around. He usually does a, a refab of the store. They, they do a reconstruction. They, they give them a new layout and, and all the rest of that. And I, I watch the show pretty regularly and I enjoy it. I mean, the, the, the guy, John Tafford, is, is a character in and of himself. And of all the things about the show, he's the part I like the least uh, just because he's so over the top. And I was mentioning this in a conversation with somebody last week and they said, you should watch The Prophet. And I go, well, what's that? And he goes, it's like that same idea, except the host, it's hosted by a, a billionaire named Marcus Lemonis. And um, basically, he goes to struggling small businesses and same idea, assesses their business, determines if there is an opportunity to make money, and then gives them a lifeline, offers to come in for a percentage of their business. He he writes them a check. And the whole gimmick that, that's a part of it is he says, by writing you this check, I am 100% in charge, whether it's for the next week or the next month or whatever. That's like sort of his line. He's like, with this check, I am now 100% in charge, even though we might only own 30% of the business. Because you're leaning on his experience as a businessman, as someone who's done this a dozen times before, to come in and save your business. And it's it's great. I mean, it's everything I like about Bar Rescue, minus the character from Bar Rescue that I'm not in love with. And Marcus Lemonis is a great character. He's a real he, – you know, he's very personable. He comes across very well on screen. And um, – uh, you know, it's just, it's just fascinating to see him go across the country, uh, the U.S. that is, and help out these small businesses. So, like, I watched an episode where he helped uh, a kid who had a, a cookie company, a kid and his mom went to a cookie company. I saw one where he helped a surfboard shop. I saw one where he helped a, a company that does, like, personalized camper trucks. So, it's like, really, any business 
that he feels could make money or make more money than they're making that needs help, he's willing to come in. Like basically at the end of the day, he just says like, I'm here to help you because I think together we can make a lot of money. And it's this, it's this amazing look at how some of these people have really messed up their business and how he can come in and with some very minimal changes, turn the business around. And I don't know, it's just, it's a very, uh, for the most part, it's a very positive success story. Although I've seen a few where the people have screwed it up and he's like, I'm not making this deal. You guys can't get out of your own way. But uh, yeah, it's called The Profit. It airs on CNBC. And uh, I think it's in its sixth or seventh season now. So there's a lot of episodes and I, I'm really enjoying it. I've been binging that all week. Wow. Sounds pretty good. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about this week because normally you have lots of pop culture stuff that you've done and I never have anything. But this week I've got all kinds of stuff to tell you about. So one of the first things is in my spare time when I'm not doing this podcast around here, I'm a college professor, as I mentioned before. But I'm not only a professor, I'm also a student because I'm an MBA candidate. So I'm studying my master's. And one of the things that I'm doing right now, I'm taking a course in uh, project management. And so the prof had us watch The Great Escape, the movie from oh, like the 50s. And fantastic what movie. we had to do was take a look at the movie and then look, like analyze the plan for the escape and how it relates to project management. And so it was really cool. Have you ever seen The Great Escape? Uh, like three or four times. Yeah, it's, I love Steve McQueen. Anything with Steve McQueen, I've seen it. I've actually just watched Papillon like two weeks ago uh, again. Oh, Papillon yeah. so yeah. good. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. Super good. And the thing yeah. with, But the Great th Escape I have seen a number of times. It's it's fantastic. The thing I like about Papillon too is that like you mentioned, I'm, I like Steve McQueen too. He was really good. And But you think of him more as like an action kind of guy. Like you think of him. Like Bullet. Yeah, like Bullet, like with the cars and, and Le Mans and, and the Great Escape, you know, him riding the motorcycle across country and into the barbed yep. wire. But in Papillon, you realize the dude could flat out act. Like he was oh, a yeah. good actor too. Yeah. And speaking of good acting in that movie, Dustin Hoffman just transforms himself into that role. Oh, it was so good. Uh, yeah, no, anyway, I back thought, to The Great Escape, yes. But, but The Great Escape. No, I, I, I thought it was really good. And it was funny. My wife started watching with me and at the beginning, Richard Attenborough comes on screen and I said, hey, that's Richard Attenborough. And she's like, who's that? I said, it's the He's guy from Jurassic Park. Guy from Jurassic Park, you know, with the gray beard. And she's like, no, that's not him. <laughs> I'm like, no, yeah, that's him. No, it isn't. I'm like, so we argued about that for the first part of the movie. But anyway, um, that aside, I have three things that I wanted to touch base on. Uh, something bad, something good, and something that got me into trouble this week. Okay. So I want, I want to share them all. So Fire away. For, first of all, the bad. My son, I have two sons. Uh, one is seven and one is actually, I would say 10, but he's actually turning 11 in like three days. So, oh, okay. So we thought, Wish him a happy birthday yeah, for me. I will, for sure. And and I was thinking, my wife and I got talking, and we thought, since he's turning 11, he's getting older, we should maybe let him start staying up a little bit later at night, you know? After the seven-year-old goes to bed, we were letting him stay up a little bit later, but then we decided maybe another half an hour, and we'd let him stay up. Fair. Yeah, it seemed fair, right? He's As a not-parent, that seems like a great yeah. idea. <laughs> so so one of the things that we, we decided that we would do is that maybe, you know, maybe the three of us, my wife, myself, and him— could maybe find a show that we could watch together in that time. Maybe we could, you know, have something. So we looked on Netflix because that's what the kids do these days when they're looking for something. And he had, I don't know, heard about this show or something. So he put this show on and it was called, I can't remember. It was a haters back off or something like that. He's like, oh, I heard about this daddy. I want to watch this. We put it on the first episode. It was hands down the worst TV show I have ever seen in my entire life, bar none. Sorry, what was it called? Haters? I think it was called Haters 
back off. Anyway, the whole idea was, you could tell, they were trying to make it be like a female Napoleon Dynamite kind of thing. It's this girl, she's colossally untalented, she puts this video on YouTube where she's singing and she can't sing, and then people don't like her, and it's just, she's just weird, and it's just, it just, the whole thing is just bizarre and weird. There's a the weird uncle, and anyway, it was just horrifically awful, so that was the bad thing. The good thing was, then tonight I said to my son, could we try something different? Could, could we just try a different show? And just see if you, because uh, I said to him, I said, did you like that show? And he's like, not really. That hater show wasn't very good. I said, okay, good. We're on the same page. So I said, let's try something different. So I came down into my basement and I found my DVD collection and I pulled it out and I found season one of Different Strokes. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say WKRP. Oh, different I Strokes. Went. That's a good call. Okay. That's what I thought. I thought WKRP. Might be I, a little dated though. Yeah. But anyway. But so we put Different Strokes on. So tonight. Just before I came down to record this podcast, we watched the pilot episode of Different Strokes, and he liked it. So a lot to like about it. Yeah, he really liked it. He was like, oh, Daddy, that was really good. I want to watch another one tomorrow. And I'm like, yes. So when I first brought it up, my wife was like, you're going to make him watch that? That's like from the 70s. Why would you make him watch something so old? I'm like, ah, just let me watch. Let him watch it. Anyway, so he liked it. So that was good. Um, the third thing that I want to mention is something that got me into trouble this week. Uh, you want to hear about it? <laughs> of course I want to hear about <laughs> it's it. It's pretty good. Uh, so well, my, my kids recently, because we're all quarantined, we're at home all the time, so we watch a lot of TV, right? So my kids have started watching Power Rangers. It's on Netflix. I mean, the original one. Okay. You know, like the one from the 90s? Uh, so my youngest son, he's seven. He was talking to my wife about how he likes the show. So they're having this conversation. And he, he says to her, my favorite Power Ranger mummy is the white one. Daddy doesn't like the white one. Daddy's favorite one is the pink one. Oh, my, my, my. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man. Let me tell you, if looks could kill, the look <laughs> I got from my wife was basically two daggers piercing through the air. <laughs> man, oh, man. Just, just to be clear, the pink one is a woman, right? It is. She's female. Just, just yeah. want to confirm yeah. that. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, uh, so I'm old. I've got kids. And that, of course, makes me an embarrassing dad. So here's your dad joke of the week. Now, as you know, I try to keep it related to our episode topic. So I'm going to try and keep with that trend. So this week, we're going to be talking about war games. So my dad joke is this. Derek, what ended the Cold War? A sweater. Global warming. Oh my god. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Why is Princess Leia trying to kill these two guys? Music? Oh, hold on, let's back that up a bit. I wouldn't go so far as to say I loved it. Okay, I was like, holy <laughs> this guy can say. I have no shame. I am not afraid of getting in front of a crowd and embarrassing myself. I'm not gonna take your filthy stolen money. We're gonna give you some musicals. New Oldsmobiles are in early this year. We're gonna give you some comedy. This keyboard doesn't have any action left in it. We're gonna give you high-speed car chases. Murph and the Magic Tones. I do not believe they're making any sequels to this. Nor should they. You're a good singer. Drop mic. Peace out, yo. We're done. Okay, so this week it was uh, back to me to nominate a movie for us to watch and review. And uh, since it's pretty much my responsibility to, to carry the flag for all things Gen X, I decided to go back to 1983 and have us rewatch the Matthew Broderick film War Games. 
I have my reasons for nominating this movie, which we'll get into, I'm sure, in a bit. But Derek, keeping in mind that we're going to do a deep dive into this movie as we go on. Just initially, what's your initial takes on watching this movie some 37 years, I guess, after it first came out? What's your take? All right. So I definitely saw War Games in the theater in 1983 when it came out. I would have been uh, nine, ten, nine, nine. I would have been nine years old. So there were certainly some of the parts of the movie that as a nine-year-old, I think, were a little over my head. Either I didn't follow it or I didn't care. I definitely saw it at least one or two more times in a, in the following years when I was a little bit older. Once we got a video player and we were able to rent it, I definitely saw it again as a teenager and you know, sort of picked up on anything that I might have missed as a younger person. I would say the last time I saw this movie would have been – the early, very late 80s or early 90s. So it's been probably 27, 28, 29, 30 years since I've seen it. Yeah, probably for me too. Yeah. But I mean, I have a pretty good memory for movies and I'm a pretty big fan of Matthew Broderick. So, you know, I definitely remember parts of it. And this is one of those movies that was sort of the first of of many that dealt with like computer hacking and like computers that, that try to you know, set off nuclear bombs and attack people. So it's sort of got a place in pop culture as like the the precursor to a lot of other movies that I do really enjoy. So even though I hadn't seen it in a long time, I was still pretty well aware of the broad strokes of what it was about. I do remember some specific scenes, but it had been a while. So as luck would have it, when you nominated this movie last week, I actually had this movie on my PVR because it had been on TV a couple of weeks earlier and I had flagged it and recorded it because I thought at the time, eh, I'll give it another watch. So when we got finished recording last week, within about 20 minutes, I was sitting down in front of the TV and I watched it right away. So I watched this movie almost a week ago Um, and I don't feel it held up as well as I wanted it to. Um, I, I didn't feel it was as good as I remembered it, but then again, I didn't remember it being spectacular in the first place. It's sort of a, it is what it is for the time in which it was made. Um, certainly any movie that deals with technology will be outdated probably by the time it hits theater and definitely by the time it hits DVD or streaming services or at the time that this one came out when it came out on VHS. So that was certainly a big issue that, you know, the, the certain technology aspects just really look dated. Now, at the time, they were really cutting edge and high tech. And again, with any period piece, you sort of have to just accept that this movie was made in a certain time, portrays that time, you assume accurately, or at least in the case of technology, maybe they've imagined what it might be a year or two down the road kind of thing. So, you know, there were definitely a lot of things that I felt didn't hold up from the, the technology side of it. But to me, the story just seemed very bland. It was very straightforward. Um, it, w- it seemed to me like more like the intent of this movie was more we're going to make an, a, a movie that's more of a cautionary tale and we're going to wrap it in a, you know, sort of drama comedy starring, you know, this these two young pretty people and – you know, we're going to give it the happy ending and and sort of go with that. So I don't know. I, I'm still sort of on the fence with it. I, I, I'm not in love with it, but I can see there are definitely some things to like about it. But I'm kind of curious 
to hear your take on it because obviously you nominated this movie, but as you just mentioned, you hadn't seen it in a while either. So I suspect we might sort of be on the same page with some of this. So let me turn it back to you for a bit. And as we go into specific parts, we can talk more about it. I will do my best to try to pull you over to understand why this movie is better than what you think it is. Okay. Okay? Uh, Because with pretty much every movie that I nominate here on the show, I hadn't seen this movie in just like you in about 25 years or more. So uh, the thing is doing this podcast is it's a trip back in time. For me, well, at least every three weeks when we do my movie, um, I, I I know you mentioned that the movie is dated, and we're definitely gonna. I'm, I will do my best to hit on all of the aspects of this movie that are dated. But hey, it's a movie about technology in 1983, so it's gonna be dated. Yeah, uh, of course. But for me, this movie is not just about the technology itself. It's about how we interact with technology in general and removing the human component uh, from things and how that has dangerous implications. Uh, So for that reason, I don't feel the movie came across as dated so much. Um, My initial impression when I watched it was this unbelievable flood of nostalgia. I forgot how much I liked this movie when I was younger. Uh, You mentioned that you didn't really care for it the first time around. I I really did like it the first time around. I'm, I'm a bit more of a political kind of person, and I like all this kind of stuff. I think it's this movie kind of slips under the radar a bit when we go back and talk about Gen X movies that we love. And it's too bad because I think it's a really, really good movie. I think the script is sharp. I think the acting is solid, especially the character actors that are in it. Uh, the casting in this movie was really, really good. And we'll come back to that in a bit. The movie has suspense. It's got action. For me, it's like piecing a puzzle together at times. I was really, really happy to go back and watch this movie. Okay. Um, I can agree with what, so again, I said it was dated, mm-hmm. um, but I agree. It's, and I, I think I, I did sort of touch on this a second ago is that the, the technology aspects of the film are dated by today's standards, but I'm not going to hold that against the film. And not like say like something, again, we're going to go back to my usual dated reference with Revenge of the Nerds. That movie's dated and there are a lot of problems with it when you look at it through <laughs> today's lens. Things that should have been a problem at the time, but weren't. This one, definitely not that same level of, of problem. Uh, uh, really, for me, the, what made it feel dated was the technology. And that's just the risk of making a movie where you're going to talk about, you know, something that is going to continue to evolve and change like technology does. Um, so I, I'm not saying I didn't like it because the the technology was dated. I, I can sort of put myself in that, well, you know, it was made in 83. The technology represents what was available in 83 and just accept that. But just still, broad strokes, didn't love it. Didn't hate it. Didn't love it. Mm-hmm. I get, and we'll break down the movie as we always do. But one thing, and we have to go back in time a bit, because the key thing to remember with this movie, and, you know, we've said this on the podcast many times, uh, but the key to remember is the times in which the film is set. So the Cold War had been building through the 60s and 70s. But when Ronald Reagan took office to start the 80s, well, I guess January of 81 to be exact, uh, the world, it changed quite a bit. I mean, he was tough on Russia. The two superpowers became locked into this stalemate of nuclear aggression, and they threatened to wipe out the entire planet. And the pop culture of the day really, really reflected this. There were movies like Independence Day, not the Will Smith one. I'm talking about the Jane Alexander one, but there was The Day After... There was Red Dawn, and then there was this movie, War Games. The threat of all-out global nuclear war was real, and it was really scary for a lot of people. Um, but as if we get into the movie, it, it, it opens up with two men 
going in to start their shift at a nuclear bunker. And right away, I recognized both the actors. I don't know if you did. One I only recognized the one. It was the guy who ended up on the West Wing. Yeah, John uh, Spencer. Who played Leo McGarry. John Spencer. Him I recognized right away. The the other guy. Michael Madsen, the crook who cuts off the cops here in Reservoir Dogs. Yes. Yeah, I had to look that up because yeah, I remember watching I recognize him this right guy away. looks familiar, yeah. but I couldn't place him. And then I'm like, wow, he must have been really young in that one. But right away, beginning of the movie, we get to see what sort of quote unquote dates the movie. There's the green text on the computer screen that they look at. And and I was immediately taken back to grade school and working on the, the, the one computer that we had in the school at the time. I remember it was in the library. And I used to work on it, and I used to do programs using Nerd. Basic. Oh, I don't know if you ever remember. Nerd. Oh, I was. Uh, but anyway, so I was taken back a bit on that. So the premise of the movie is really set up when a nuclear war is started, and the one guy refuses to set off the missiles. And he panics. He doesn't want to end the world. Turns out it was a test, right? But um, what I was saying about the, the text on the computer screen, back in those days, computer text all had that kind of familiar pixelated font you know that they used and when the opening title sequence of the movie is running the credits are using that font so again i can see where you would immediately think you know the movie is is dated i get it but um when the guy walks into the big command center for the first time and the camera pulls back and you see this huge room with the big screens and the maps and the coordinates and the data on the big screens it's a pretty impressive movie set and if you're familiar yeah. with this movie and you see a picture of that set, you know immediately it's War Games. Yeah, I read uh, – I think they ended up using this set for other movies afterwards or something. I think I read that. Like it's – because it was such – it was so well done and it was so distinct. Other movies and TV shows wanted to use it for stuff. But yeah, I agree with you. When you see it, if you're familiar with the movie, there's no doubting that that's what it is. So the first of many character actors that appear in this movie is Barry Corbin. He plays the army general. He was a really good character actor back in the 80s. He was in a lot of movies and TV shows there for a while. He was in Stir Crazy and Any Which Way You Can and Six Pack. I don't know if you remember that one. Or Best Kenny little, Rogers? Yeah, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Saw that in film. Yeah. Saw that in the theater. Oh, yeah, me too. Six Pack I did as well. I saw it in the theater. Um, my wife was watching something on TV recently. I don't remember what it was, but he was in it. He looks a lot different now. Like he's bald and he's obviously a lot older, but he's got such a distinct voice. Like, I knew it was him right away. But uh, anyway, he has he has a line that totally dates the movie. He's They all get together, and he's talking to the other sort of top guys at the command center. And he says, uh, there's been men in those silos since before you were watching Howdy Doody. And my, 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 my son turns to me, because I had my 11-year-old son watch it with us. Yeah. And he's like, what's Howdy Doody? What's Howdy Doody? <laughs> I'm like, heck, it's before my time, you know. But um, character actors. Dabney Coleman as McKittrick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. what a great character actor he was from the 80s. Remember, he was in Tootsie. And he was in 9 to 5. 9 to 5, Young he Doctors. He was in Cloak and Dagger. Cloak and Dagger, yeah, with uh, Henry Thomas. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. A lot of really great character actors in this. The guy that plays Barry Corbin's assistant jumped out to me, too. He was the hotel manager in Ghostbusters. I recognized him too. Oh, right away. he was also in a Star Trek: The Next Generation episode oh, where okay. uh, Riker gets trapped in the hospital, and it's like, oh my god, there's an alien in the hospital, and he's the administrator who like tries to kill himself to be a martyr. That's where I always remember him from. Oh, and you he reminds him. me of the actor who plays Les Nessman. It's not the same guy, but I feel right. he sort of has that same similar. Well, look. that was Richard Sanders, different guy, and and you call me a nerd. Uh, so Whopper, 
the war operation plan response. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. <laughs> it's an, and at one point, the camera pans around it, and it's like the trench on the Death Star. Yeah. It's <laughs> almost like they had to emphasize, if this computer is really big, it must be really good. Exactly. As opposed to everything today where your phone is how big? <laughs> Mine's even smaller. Look how much better it is. It's I, like the scene in Zoolander where he's got the teeny tiny phone and it's like, this is the best one because it's smallest. The massive room full of massive computers and the amount of computer power in that room would now fit into the palm of your hand. Oh, yeah, like, for sure. Times have changed so much. But uh, anyway, so away from the character actors and on to the main, the lead is Matthew Broderick, of course. Technically, it was his second movie because Max Dugan Returns came out Three months before this one did, in the same year, in 83. Was Dabney Coleman in that, too? Uh, no, he wasn't. Uh, Jason Robards was in it. Okay. I don't know why I always assume that. That title always, for some reason, tweaks my mind of Dabney Coleman. I don't know why. And uh, and this movie, obviously, was before Ferris Bueller. Which of course, pretty, yeah. Which pretty much typecast him, you know, for the rest of his career, until he did, went on to Broadway with the producers. But anyway, so I thought it was interesting. He takes Ali Sheedy into his house and invites her up to his room. And she says, aren't your parents home? And his he his response was no they both work, which again dates yeah. the movie dates the right movie away for sure. because it, it yeah. back then it wasn't always a given that both the husband and wife worked right something minor in the film but it really kind of stood out to me. Um, so then he's in his room and he's working on the computer and my my son turns to me and, and says Dad what's a floppy disk? Yeah, <laughs> and then the modem that Broderick has to put the phone on and my yeah. son is like what's what's that thing? I don't know if he meant the modem or the corded phone that he had to put on. I don't know. But, uh, and then I thought I really liked the part where there's a single password on the school computer. Yes. And Broderick gets it off the desk drawer. Yeah. I got to tell you, my grade, I think it was grade 11, my computer class, the teacher had, they had a computer room. And, and so there was a bunch of computers in the room. They were all hooked up to his computer, the teacher. And I used to always break the password into his computer. Uh, the teacher used a one-word password, and it always had to do with the tree. Like it was branch or leaf or something like that. And whenever yeah. he would change it, I would, I would just experiment with sort of typical tree-related words. Yeah. And I used to always break in. I'd be like, you know, leaf, oh, that didn't work. Apple, boom, I'm in. I was like a little criminal. Luckily, I mean, he didn't have global thermonuclear war on his computer. Probably just chess or something. Yeah. But um, Well, and I mean, by today's standards, most because people do that and did that kind of thing, they know that, hey, if you enter a wrong password a certain number of times, the system either locks you out or, you know, you can't try again for an hour. I mean, th these are all things that we've learned since 1983 that in 1983, this, this was – I got to think a lot of people when they saw this movie, they – had never worked on like people had never been on a computer before. Mm -hmm. Very few people had home computers. If Very like few. almost nobody yeah. had any had a home computer, and a lot of the things that we see in this movie that you sort of take for granted uh, were would have been very cutting edge, nerdy, tech savvy. Like the fact that he has a modem. Like Ali Sheedy's character basically is the the stand in for the audience, right? right? She doesn't understand this stuff, so he has to explain it to her, and at the same time, he's explaining it to us, the audience. Now, today's movie going audience understands all this because of the way technology has evolved in 40 years since the movie came out. Um, but it is interesting to sort of to, to get the very basic descriptions from Broderick's character 
to us as the audience as he defines it like he and like you said he's like oh um i need a floppy disk and it's not even the the five and a quarter inch floppy disk it's like a 12 inch floppy disk it's huge, but it's in yeah. a case like a five and a, like i ne- i didn't realize floppy disk came that size but it's like okay um and then when he when he's trying to um to figure out the phone number for he, – he's trying to find the, uh, the the video game company, right? That's right. the whole thing that starts this, right? He sees yeah. the ad, company, whatever it was called. He wants to find out what games they've got. We got new games coming out and he's like, well, I'm going to try and hack into their system. And he basically has a, a, a robo-dialer, an auto-dialer. Dial every number with this prefix. Go. And uh, and it just systematically starts at zero 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 one zero 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 two because they were dialing. all regular phone numbers back then except yeah. whatever computer when he hits is probably the one. Yeah, and then like, and then you see, uh, you know, the next day when he comes back, he's like, "Oh, this one was a bank." Oh, he goes, "Well, I'll make a note of that." But one of the things that that struck me right away was he was calling. They were in where Seattle, I think the movie yes, took place. That's right. And yeah. he was calling Los Angeles or somewhere in California. So I'm like, these are long distance calls being made during the day. She this said would have been that though. expensive. She said and that to him. She said, yeah. she goes, isn't that expensive? He goes, well, there's ways around that too. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm glad – and you and I have talked about this on other movie reviews where some little detail just pisses – pardon me – bugs you to the point where it's like that's all you can think about for the next five minutes is this little detail that goes un, unsaid. So I like that whoever wrote the film had enough sense to say – Let's not have a distraction with this. Let's just use one line of dialogue where he says, I'll take care of it. And you're supposed to, you know, get out of that, that you've already seen him hack uh, through other computers. He's obviously got a way to hack in with the phone company or or he's got now he's got an info to a bank. Maybe he's going to transfer money. So, yeah, it was like on the one hand, I thought this is going to be incredibly expensive. But on the other hand, I was glad they addressed it through the dialogue of the movie, and, and then I could stop thinking about there it. There you go. Good point. The scene at the dinner table when Matthew Broderick is eating with his parents, and the dad goes to eat the corn, and he says, this corn is raw. Yeah. And, the, and the mom's like, I know. Isn't it delicious? It's so crunchy. I don't know why I just burst into laughter at that so scene. So did I. I don't so know why I. it just made me laugh so much. Um, another thing that dates the movie the the scene that you were just talking about when he's breaking into all the different uh, computers in the area, and he breaks into the American Airlines website, and he's like, Let, "Let's let's go somewhere," and he and he books him two tickets to Paris, and he and he asks he books her, a reservation. He doesn't book reservation. The Sorry, he books a reservation. No money changes hands because right. that's not something you can do online at that point. True, but he says to her, "Smoking or non-smoking." For the yes. seat on the airline, I was like, "Oh, there's the smoking again with these '80s <laughs> movies." Um, he goes to the computer place. With the two computer nerds to get their advice. Did, yes. you, did you happen to recognize those two guys? No, I did not. So one was Maury Chaikin. He's a, he was a Canadian actor. He's, he's passed away. Um, he never really had any big time success, but he was a really good actor. I remember him. He was in The Sweet Hereafter and Whale Music. And then the other guy was Eddie Deason from Greece in 1941. And he's got that funny voice, you know, the little guy. Um, but Eddie Deason, he has a line. It's it's something like he says the system probably contains this new protected algorithm. Like it's like all this high tech talk that you know in 1983 probably sounded like mumbo jumbo. But yeah, today every everybody in the audience totally understands it, right? Um, so they tell him that he needs to go and find the guy that first programmed the computer system. So he goes to the library 
and he's looking through these oh, index microfiche, yeah. <laughs> and with the Dewey Decimal System on the index cards, and my son's like, "What are those things?" He's pointing at the index card. That, that's internet for old people, son. <laughs> I know. And like you mentioned, he's looking at the microfiche. I had to explain to my son back then there was no Google. You know, you actually had to go to the library and manually look things up and then locate the book on the stacks, you know, and then pour through the book to find the information you were looking for. And then I like how Broderick, he ends up getting a VHS tape that he takes home and top loads into his VCR. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and now you just look it up on YouTube and watch it in your hand, you know. Yeah. But but anyway, so they, they find out about Falcon. And I love the exchange between Ali Sheedy and Broderick in that scene because they're talking about Professor Falcon. And they're like, he's dead. He was old. Yeah, he was 41. Yeah, he was 41. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's old. Freaking kids. Hey, jeez, I tell you. Um, But the voice of the computer when they tap in to Joshua. Yes. uh, And he says, shall we play a game? Very dated technology. For the voice, which but I, very memorable. It's yeah, distinct. It it's very distinct. It's like with the HAL 2000 from 2000 and, or yeah, 2001, the movie. It was HAL 2000 was the name of the computer, right? HAL it was 9, just HAL. HAL, HAL 9000. Thank yeah. you. I knew there was a number. That's right. Again, it's it's a synthesized uh, voice. I mean, it's a real actor saying it, but it's been put through filters. It has a very distinct and memorable sound that that is clearly when you hear that voice, you know, that's the computer from 2001 A Space Odyssey. I find with that, with the voice from War Games where it says, do you want to play a game? It's, again, done in such a way that yeah. even if I was to hear that voice, that synthesized voice saying any other dialogue, immediately I'm going to say, that's the voice from the War Games computer. I agree. And and so they tap and they start playing Global Thumor Nuclear War. Right. And, of course, the war guy, the, the guys in the war room, they think it's real. And and, the, and I like the guy comes from the guy that runs the Whopper. He comes running out and he's like, he's trying to tell him to stop. He's like, it's a simulation. And yeah. I recognize that guy too as another character. He was in the movie Arthur. He was the security guard that tried to arrest Liza Minnelli when she steals the tie from Bergdorf's. I've never seen Arthur, so or I, the, I don't remember seeing Arthur. Oh, God, I'm going to have to get you to watch that in, in, a, in another uh, podcast for sure. And then another military guy in that same scene, I recognized he was the judge in the Jim Carrey movie Liar, Liar. I recognize him right away. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, the movie just chock full of these recognizable character actors. But anyway, back to the computer, the Joshua. He's playing the game of nuclear war. And they, they ask him what the objective is. And the computer says to win the game. I know it's kind of dated the way the computer says it, but when he says to win the game, it just, oh, it just works. It sounds really ominous. I know it's this sort of substandard voice technology, but like you mentioned, like it's very memorable, right? You know, just the way he says it. Uh, And I like, again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of comic relief in this movie too. They're running the tour group through the command center and I love how the military guy asked the one woman, he's like, come on up here, sit down, push that button. And then she pushes the button and the sirens go off. And he's like, no, no, not that one. Just And then he's like, just kidding, just kidding. And this welcome message comes up on the screen. So the movie had a lot of humor, which I think is important, actually, because it was complimentary to the heavy subject matter. Yes. And it, it, yeah. it, now we watch this movie, we don't see this as, as sort of heavy, you know, subject matter in this movie but back in 1983 this was very very substantial stuff you know um so they bring matthew broderick in and they put him in this office and he's like handcuffed 
And Dabney Coleman comes in to interrogate him. And of course, Dabney Coleman is smoking <laughs> this, like, uh, yeah. with this kid in a confined room. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I don't know. All these Gen X films, we keep going back and all this smoking. It's a bit revealing, I guess. Uh, but the one thing that stood out to me as being very contrived in this scene, I can't believe the director left it in, was when Matthew Broderick wipes his nose on his sleeve in the middle of the scene. It, it's as if to portray him as a, like a snot-nosed kid. I don't know if Matthew Broderick improvised that or what. I, I, for me, it just it really stood out to me. I didn't catch it. Yeah. So, I, 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 honestly, I'll be honest. When I watch some of these movies, even the ones that I pick, from time to time, I check my phone. And that might have been one of those scenes where I'm like, okay, it's just going to be the two of them talking. Let's see who's emailed me. Oh, it's midnight. Nobody. Okay, back to the movie. Well, it's 2020. You can multitask now instead of just yeah. watching a movie, right? Uh, well, the next scene, they lock him in that hospital room. And he uses the scissors and the tape recorder to copy the, the door lock code or whatever to get out. Yeah. And he sneaks out with the tour group. And then he gets away and goes to the phone booth. And he remember he used that little pop can tab to short circuit the phone receiver yeah. into working. And again, it's the whole technology aspect of the film, you know, which in 1983, uh, I guess, was more impactful than now. Like my son had all kinds of questions in that scene. He was like, like the phone booth <laughs> what the hell is yeah. that you know like and then and the other thing is he calls the operator in the scene and he asks for falcon's home phone number like there's like so many more like less uh privacy issues obviously oh, back yeah. in those days like you yeah. could call the operator and say i'm looking for this guy's uh, phone number he's on this address and like okay here it is <laughs> like really <laughs> uh, i thought the guy that played falcon though was very well cast I thought he was. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't know him. I, I recognize him from something yeah. else. Uh, I'll see if I can figure it out before we finish the podcast. I, I didn't recognize him from anything. I thought he was really good in the role. But the character itself is full of all these metaphors. Like he flies a pterodactyl model and he's got all these dinosaurs in his house and he watches the movie on dinosaurs. You know, it's all this whole metaphor that, you know, how he feels humanity is on the brink of extinction. And the thing is, in 1983... It's the height of the Cold War. And this idea of extinction was a feeling that was actually held by a lot of people at the time. The threat of nuclear war in 1983 and that whole mutually assured destruction, it, it was it was very real. It was a real threat for a lot of people in the Western world. The, the whole scene that, that follows with Ali Sheedy, when they're on, remember they're at the beach, it's at night? Yeah. It plays into it because he's like, I can't swim. And then he says, I always thought I'd have time to learn. And then she starts crying. She's like, I'm only 17. I'm not ready to die. Again, it's just a reflection. It seems a little corny when you watch it now. But at the time when you watch that movie, like it was yeah. a reflection of how scary things were. You know, it's, it's hard for people younger than 40 to understand. But I think the threat of dying from nuclear war was, was a very, very real thing in the 1980s, especially the early 80s. Yeah, again, I, I although I was alive at that time, I was so young that it, that never really factored into my my thought process as a young person. Like it was not something I was really savvy to. And then by the time I was old enough to really understand it, now we're into the 90s. Right, it's the like, threat okay, Cold, Cold War's over. Yeah. So it's like you're learning about it after the fact. Glass it's like, oh. You know, like, I mean, yeah. Okay. Um, I thought when they, they got to the command center, 
I thought Falcon had a great line. Maybe the best line of the movie. Uh, maybe the second best line. I'll get to the best one later. Uh, but when he says to Barry Corbin, you're listening to a machine. Do the world a favor and don't act like one. Yeah. I thought it was a good line. Because really the message of the, the movie is is sort of the condemnation of too much technology, right? Which I think seems probably quaint by today's standards. I wonder how this concept resonates with today's audiences. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you've sort of we've already sort of talked about it a little bit in in the right thing where the the technology feels dated because the movie is so old, but the message doesn't feel dated. Uh, partly because Hollywood has continued to lean on this idea, uh, and I mentioned this earlier in the show, this idea that technology can be both helpful and potentially harmful. Like you look at something like the Terminator, which is the, you know, the ultimate worst case scenario of you, you use a computer to help with your military defense, your national defense, and suddenly it becomes self-aware and decides, why do we need people? And now you've, you know, it's man versus machine, literally man versus machine in a physical all out confrontation. And, you know, obviously war games being one of the earlier uh, movies that that addresses this in a way that makes it feel realistic and plausible. Uh, not that Terminator in, you know, 1984, when it, it was for the first one, uh, it was 84, right? For the first one? Uh, Terminator was 84, yeah. 84. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, 1984, people didn't believe that a time-traveling robot was going to come back to kill Sarah Connor. But it leaned on that idea of technology. Uh, technology is bad. Technology pushed to certain to you know to a certain extent can be bad. I mean, and then it, this this idea continues in the movies. Like the Matrix is is again another fantastic example of what happens when people become dependent upon technology, and the technology becomes so powerful so quickly that it becomes self aware. And not that well, I guess to a certain extent it does talk about how the Joshua computer is a learning computer, right? It it plays chess and gets better every time it plays because it learns from its own mistakes. So this really is the sort of the the the, the granddaddy of the of these kinds of movies, and we continue to see this genre play out in new and creative ways. So going back to your original question, because it's a really long way around, how would this hold up today? How would today's you know young people see this? I think they'd feel the movie's outdated. But I think they'd get the message because they've probably already heard it from other films they are more familiar with, like The Matrix, like the Terminator franchise and things of that nature. So uh, I, I would be I would expect that it would hold up. Uh, the ideas would hold up. Yeah. And you mentioned Terminator and even T2 was in 91, I think it was. And yeah. a big theme in that movie was nuclear war you know, destroying people and killing, you know, wiping out, you know, millions of, of human beings. Uh, and related back to this movie, I think it might have been uh, just like a bit of a, people think it's just a throwaway scene and a throwaway special effect. But the scene when the missiles are apparently inbound and they're yes. starting to impact and there's those yes. flashes of light and the round circles appear on the map. Like I mentioned, it, it might seem like a bit of a throwaway, especially now, but watching this movie in 1983 in a theater, in a dark theater with other people, this was terrifying for yeah. audiences to watch. It's a very suspenseful scene in the movie. Doesn't play as well today, obviously, as a result. But at the time, wow. 
Very, very but impactful. It was very reminiscent, even at the time. To me, it was reminiscent of the video game Missile Command, which I don't know if the video game came before the movie or vice versa. Not that they're related, but the visuals very much looked like the Missile Command video game. They partly did. because I think yeah. the technology was limited. It could You could only render things to look in certain ways if you wanted it to do certain things. So, yeah, you had those those diagonal lines that were really just a series of straight lines going on a weird angle and and then when it blew up you had the circle it was like boom and then it was like the white circle and then the white circle faded away and you had the crater left behind and that very much was the same style that was used in this movie again don't know which one came first but i'm sure whichever one did or whichever one came second borrowed from the other you know, as we get to the end of the, the movie, I still think there's a lot of really good lines that came out. As much as I liked uh, Falcon's line earlier about not acting like a machine, I loved Barry Corbin's line when he says, I'd piss on a spark plug if I thought I'd do any good. And like, <laughs> such a typical thing for a Barry Corbin character to say. He was always this Southern character that had this way with words. You know, that was always the roles he was getting cast to play. But anyway, uh, the computer, Joshua, finally agrees to play tic-tac-toe. And yes. the I just love the ra- this random military guy. <laughs> yeah. He's like, put the X in the center square. <laughs> like, yeah, again, thanks, just, bud. I've played tic-tac-toe before. I know yeah, how this works. Exactly. But I'm glad you're here to help. <laughs> it's like this funny series of lines in the middle of this really tense scene. And I think it's really good work by the director, John Badham. You know, I, I thought he did a good job just to pace the whole film and just balance everything out. Really good job there. Uh, so the computer plays tic-tac-toe over and over again to learn that some games you just can't win. And I just love how Whopper almost melts down from playing tic-tac-toe over and over yeah. again. It's, yeah. it's, again, not the same amount of computing power back in 1983, apparently. And, and then the message, of course, is that, you know, obviously in global thermonuclear war, there's no winner. And the best line of the whole movie, as far as I'm concerned, goes to the computer, of all things, when it reflects on playing global thermonuclear war. And it just says, the only winning move is not to play. So yeah. I just I think the, the movie resonates. I think, it, like, like you mentioned, you know, the, the, the technology is dated, but the message isn't dated. Yeah, definitely. That, you know, I agree with that. I don't know. I I thought it was really good. It was a lot of nostalgia there. I liked this movie a lot more uh, than you did, I think, when I first saw it. You know, when I was a kid, I liked it. I, I, I just, I thought it was really, uh, I don't know. I thought it was really good. And going back and watching it now, all these years later, I, th- I thought it still kind of held up. And my son really liked it. I was going to say, you. so how old your son? You said he's 10. He's going to be 11. He's going to be 11 in a couple days. So yeah. let's say he's 11. So as an 11-year-old, yeah. despite the fact that he didn't recognize or understand a lot of the 80s technology, as a whole, did he enjoy the movie? And do you feel that he like understood the message or did you talk to him about it after? Like, How did that work? So we haven't had a chance to really talk about the message too much other than the fact that I asked him about the movie and he loved it. He said it was really – he goes, I really liked that movie, Daddy. That was really good. Can we watch it again? So – it's always a good sign. You yep. want to repeat viewing. Yep. yep. And he liked it. He also liked uh, different strokes, as I mentioned earlier. So I'm like, I'm raising the, I'm doing the right thing here. Parenting win for me. Uh, but no, I thought it was really good. Um, going back and watching it all these years later, do you want to rate it out of 10 for me? Six and a half. Okay. I would go a little bit higher. I'd probably say about seven and a half. Yeah. yeah I, I think just, that's what I would do. I don't know. I just, it doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me. It's, Unlike your son, this isn't something I want to go back and watch again. I didn't feel that there was anything in it 
that I needed to see again. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, some movies, again, certain genres are certainly more uh, akin to a rewatch. Action movies, sci-fi movies, those ones you want to probably watch multiple times because there's like action sequences or whatever, something you might get something new out of it. A lot of times with dramas, it's, you you know, there's less value in watching it again really quickly because it's like, well, I just like think like a court case or a long, boring period piece. It's like, well, I don't need to see this again. I got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one to me, it was like it was it was to your point. It was nostalgic to watch it again because it had been so long. But because I sort of knew the broad strokes and I remembered certain key scenes of the movie and I, I was familiar with what the overall message was, didn't really feel I got anything out of it this time that I didn't really get out of it the last time other than just to watch it again through today's lens. I will say though, despite things like you said, smoking or non-smoking and the fact, you know, we always joke about how the smoking thing, this one, uh, was pretty good compared to some of the other ones we've watched recently where there really wasn't a lot of things in it that just stood out as being hugely problematic. The only thing that I felt really seemed inappropriate was when Matthew Broderick's character was locked up in that doctor's office and there was the military guy outside yeah, and hitting on the secretary. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like that to me felt a little creepy. Um, again, I understand, especially in the to- at the time, it was supposed to be played for like, hey, you know, he's hitting on this girl. But that to me just – That was the really, distraction that took yeah, him away. It, like, yeah. it really stood yeah. out. For, it, it, you needed that for the, for the plot to work. I know. But it, by today's standard, it's like no. he was in a position of authority. You could, you know, it's like it was inappropriate. The questions and the like, and he was like lean, right in our personal space. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, that it, you, I'm, I'm so much more aware of those things now uh, that when I watch some of these older movies, it's like they're, you know, they're they're cringeworthy to a certain extent. But mm-hmm. aside from that, there really wasn't a lot of things in this movie that I that sort of gave me that cringy sort of like um, whereas, again, a movie like Revenge of the Nerds, every five minutes, you're like, oh, right. boy, that's you can't do that. Um, so from that point of view, I think it's it's pretty good in that sense. But again, given the kind of movie it is, I really didn't expect to see a lot of that. Uh, I did uh, notice that what stood out to me again, sign of the times. Almost, almost all the military people and all the computer people were all men. And oh, that's they, true. Yep, they were. There, there was, was mostly one white woman. guys. Yep, there was one I mean, woman. There was a, yeah, there was a couple, yep. couple people of color, but for the for the vast majority, it yep. was men and it was white men. Good and point. Yeah. From that point of and view, and they all smoked, <laughs> and they all smoked. But from that point of view, it did uh, sort of paint a message where it's like they were reluctant to listen to the nerdy guy who was who was trying to tell them this isn't real this is a computer simulation and they were reluctant to listen to the young the young right. character played by Matthew Broderick because because he was a youngster and it really sort of reinforced that mentality of i'm an old white man i know what i'm doing i don't have to listen to anybody else and that did come across very clearly in this movie and you know it's a it's problematic and and it was a problem point in this plot that was worked right into the plot of the movie. So from that point of view, it was a problem, but it was sort of addressed by the the movie itself. I, and I mean, they didn't address it in the way of hey, we're flagging this as a bad thing. But at the time, even the people writing and making the movie realized if we make all these guys old white dudes, they're not going to listen to anybody else, and that'll work for the story we're trying to tell. So mm-hmm. yeah, 
Anyway, it is what it is. The movie was popular when it came out. It was it made, oh, yeah. it made top five in the in the box office for the, the year it came out in eighty three. I mean, Return of the Jedi was number one. Uh, Tootsie was number two. Tootsie came out in December of eighty two, but it made most of its money in eighty three. Then there was Flashdance, Trading Places, and War Games. And War Games was made for twelve million, but it made almost eighty million at the box office. So it's a big right. success. When it so came I run out. that list by me again. Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi was number one. Tootsie yeah. was number two. Yeah. Flashdance 3, Trading Places 4, and War Games 5, and Octopussy was number 6, and number 7 was Staying Alive. Oh, God. Wow. So, Trading Places we've done on this podcast, yep. War Games we've done on the podcast, that's mm-hmm. 4 and 5, and I know you keep talking about bringing in Tootsie, so oh, we'll definitely if and when we ever do Tootsie, yep. then we're going to have three three of the top 5 on yep. the podcast. I mean, we're not going to go back and do the Star Wars movies. I think that that's just going to be a... You know, two two of us gushing about how much we love Star Wars. So that right. doesn't seem like a very interesting episode. But um, yeah, maybe Flashdance. Nah, we'll do Tootsie before we do Flashdance. Yeah, for sure. We will. Anyway, on that note, what do you say we have some fun with Caveman? All right, my friend, it's over to you. Uh, it was my movie. So I guess uh, you get to take care of the trivia this week. What do you got for me? All right. Well, uh, we're going to go a little bit on the nose with this one this week. Okay. Um, This movie starred Matthew Broderick. As you mentioned, this was one of his very first movie roles. But Matthew Broderick has been acting and performing uh, on the stage and on the screen for a long time. He's got a a pretty substantial list of credits. So I'm going to test you on your Matthew Broderick film knowledge. Okay. Now, I know that he hasn't Matthew, done a lot of films though, eh? When you think about well, it. Well, he's done more than you think and yeah, I and just, I think of him as like I, said, I mentioned uh, when once he did Ferris Bueller, I feel like he got typecast and then just kind of stopped. Yeah, to a certain extent, um but uh I think I tried to make the list more heavy with titles he did when he was much younger because I know that once the 90s came around, you probably haven't seen most of the things he's been in since yeah, then. Yeah, that's true. Um yeah, so point. You know, I, I tried to pepper a few new ones in there with a, with more of the old ones. So I wanted to give you a fighting chance. I'm, I'm not trying to trick you on any of these. They're very straightforward questions. But I think if you are not familiar with his body of work, some of these are just going to go over your head. So mm-hmm. let's uh, no, let's I, I know him pretty go. good, I think. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, okay. And I mean, I, I'm a big fan of his work, too. So it wasn't much of a stretch for me to uh, come up with questions for these. A few of them I had to go back and watch the trailers to some of these movies. What was this movie? Oh, yeah, but... Okay, so you ready? Matthew Broderick trivia. Uh, I'm going to give you the description of the movie, and you just give me the title, and Matthew Broderick is in every one of these ones. Ready? Yeah, I think I can do that. All right. Okay, in this 1985 fantasy film, Matthew Broderick plays a young thief who unwillingly gets involved with a warrior and his female traveling companion who suffer from a demon's curse and are hunted by the church. Is that Lady Hawk? That is Lady Hawk. Yeah. Right. Have you seen Lady Hawk? Yes. I was like a long time ago. I don't remember much about it. Wasn't well, that um, Michelle Pfeiffer? And Rutger Howard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it yeah. Was, so been a long time. Yeah. let me tell you about Lady Hawk. Mm-hmm. The soundtrack kills it because it's all 80s synthesizer music. It is ter- it is a painful rewatch because you can't <laughs> get past the music. Oh, Other than that, the movie's pretty decent, though. All right. On to the next question. Matthew Broderick plays the commanding officer of the 54th. Massachusetts Infantry Regiment in this period drama about the Union Army's second African-American regiment in the American Civil War. Oh, uh, African-American. That was glory. Yes, it was. Yes. I've never seen it. 
I haven't seen it either, but I'm familiar with it. Oh, we may have to watch it then. I yeah. heard it's great. Yeah, there you go. All right. This this one, hit or miss. In this 2015 Judd Apatow comedy features a cameo from Matthew Broderick playing himself. Oh, I mentioned this just last week on the show was Trainwreck. Yay! Yeah, I, I mentioned that one. I like Judd yeah. Apatow. He's good. And I knew I knew you had seen it, so yeah, I thought, well, yeah. let's see if you get this one right. Okay. Uh, as soon as you mentioned 2015, I was like, oh, I'm not going to know this one, but no, hey, sure no. enough, okay. there you go. All right, we got a pair of questions here from 1999. The first one, in 1999, Matthew Broderick played the live action version of this cartoon character oh, originally nice. voiced by Get Smart actor Don Adams. Yeah, that was Inspector Gadget. Yeah, yes, it was. That. Yeah, I didn't see the movie, but I'm familiar with it. All right. Also in 1999, mm-hmm. Matthew Broderick played Mr. McAllister, a high school teacher who makes it his mission to stop overachiever Tracy Flick from becoming student body president. Name the movie. Oh, that was, uh, oh, was that Re- oh, Reese Witherspoon's movie? Was it? Yes. E- yeah. She was, was Pick Flick. Was it elec- Election? Election. Yeah. yeah. Yes, oh, I'm doing so good this week. Yeah, oh, and I saw Election is uh, on on the lineup uh, this week on one of the free movie channels. So oh, if nice. you haven't seen oh. it in a while and you're interested, nice. go set your recorder. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Next question: A group of young recruits, including Matthew Broderick, go through boot camp during the during the Second World War. Broderick and two of his film co-stars oh. reprise their roles from the Broadway play of the yeah. same name. I know that that's from the '80s. It was Biloxi Blues. Yes, it was. Yes, yeah, yeah. Nicely done, 1988. Yeah. All right. This one's a little newer. Maybe, maybe not. No longer satisfied with stomping Japan, this 1998 monster movie reboot had the title character stomping through New York City while Matthew Broderick and his team tried to stop it. Name the movie. This, I felt like, was a big comeback for him. This was Godzilla. It was Godzilla. I remember that, yeah. Yeah. It was uh, the movie was not great, but the soundtrack was oh. amazing. I I actually enjoyed the movie. Oh, believe it. It was I was working at Blockbuster Video when this came out, and it was one of those ones at the time where they made the video available for sell through. Mm-hmm. Everybody was buying it. it. Was we huge. couldn't keep it on the shelf, and yeah, you, people bought the video and the soundtrack, and the soundtrack's amazing. All right, the so- sorry, the soundtrack that was uh, Puff Daddy with. Uh, Come to me was that not the yeah. song? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that was. And it good. had uh, yeah. the Wallflowers did the cover of David Bowie's Heroes, which was really good. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. Machine had a song on there. Oh. Yeah, there was a lot of good songs on that soundtrack. It really I, held up. Can't believe I know yeah. that much about something from 1998. But. No kidding! Wow, wait, wait, look at you stretching your uh, your muscles there. All right, next question. The script for this 1996 comedy directed by Ben Stiller and starring Matthew Broderick and Jim Carrey sold for 750000 and went on to earn $102 million worldwide. I saw this movie and I didn't like it. I thought it was dark and weird, but it's the, the cable guy. That's correct. Right? Yeah. Same with you, Chris. I yeah. saw it and I didn't really yeah, like it. I didn't care for it. Uh, yeah. A lot of Jim Carrey fans, though, think it's some of his best work. I'm not a big Jim nope. Carrey fan. I did not care. I am not a big Jim, Jim Carrey fan either. I think Liar Liar is his best work, but no. Nah, I'm with like you. that one. Yeah. Yeah. All, uh, yeah. All right. Next question. Both Gene Wilder and Matthew Broderick played Leo Bloom in this Mel Brooks classic. Wilder in 1967 and Broderick in 2005. Name the movie. That was the producers. It was indeed the producers. 
I love the original. That's for sure. Perfect so far, Chris. You haven't missed one yet. I'm doing so good at this one. All right. Let's not try. Let's not jinx it. Yeah. Okay. Next question. (laughs) Matthew Broderick lent his voice to this Disney animated classic in 1994. Three other actors, including Jonathan Taylor Thomas, J.D. McCrary, and Donald Glover have also voiced the same character on the big screen. Name the movie. I would have no idea until you mentioned Jonathan Taylor Thomas. And for whatever reason, I know that he voiced the Lion King. That's correct. Yeah. Now, you, if I remember correctly, so, so, Nancy so, had you watch the Lion King he as did. part of an earlier he did. show, right? He yeah. did. And I had never seen it before, but I remember Jonathan Taylor Thomas because he was in um, Home Improvement. Yes, and, he was. And he did the voice in that. But you're, So Matthew Broderick did a voice in the same movie or a different version? They of the all movie? played, all the actors I mentioned voiced Simba, two of them as the young Simba oh, and two different, of them as the adult Simba. Point, oh, different ages. Yes. Oh, okay, yeah. got it. So when they remade, when they did the John Favreau version, the computer animated version a couple of years ago, it was J.D. McCrary as the young one and Donald Glover as the older one. So, gotcha. Yeah. All right. Uh, only a few more questions to go. I think these are all pretty easy for you. So... Uh, next one. In 1987, in this 1987 film, Broderick plays an airman who cares for chimpanzees used in a secret Air Force project. Oh, considering that I didn't think he did all that many movies, this is Project X. I it is Project X. Was I remember seeing Helen Hunt? Yeah, Helen yeah, Hunt. Yeah. Oh. God, no. He did a lot more movies than I thought. Okay. Yeah. All right. In this 1990 comedy... Matthew Broderick is welcomed into a crime family run by Marlon Brando, who plays a parody of his most famous role. Oh God, I remember the I remember the the movie poster was Marlon Brando grabbing his face. Yep, that's oh, the one. What was it called? I, I can't remember the name of it for the life of me. Oh, I don't know. I knew I'd get you on one of those. I, I don't remember. The Freshman. Oh, The Freshman. I, I never saw it, but I, I remember. I never saw it either. Brando, it looked like Brando was like the, the godfather in yeah, the picture. The and he was like grabbing his like, face. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I never so, saw it, though. Oh, geez. All right. Okay. Broderick has done a lot more than I thought. Okay. Nice, nice, easy, slow law ball right over the plate on oh, the last nice. one here. In Broderick's most iconic and memorable role, his character reminds us that life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around, you could miss it. Nice. It's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yes. Absolutely Ferris Bueller's yes. Day Off. Oh, all right. Nice. Well, pretty you pretty good. Got them, all, got them all at one. Once oh, you nice. I'm, I feel happy about that. Yeah, nice. So you went, I think I had 13 questions. You went 12 for 13. Not bad. Yeah. No. Not bad. I, I, again, I, he, did, he did some later works that I thought, well... You're probably not going to know the titles, and you've definitely never heard of some of those movies. So yeah. I figured I'd stick to What's your wheelhouse. Sense? Yeah, yeah. That, that's good. Uh, so next show, so this was my movie. So next week, you get to nominate a film. Do you have a movie that you'd like me to watch? If so, uh, what is it? Okay, so I, I'm really struggling with with which movie to give you next. Okay. I have a, a short list here. and I, I do I, this every week, too. I come down to a couple. Yeah. And I, never, I make the decision like on the fly. Well, I, I, I've decided that I'm, I've given up trying to find a movie I think you're going to like. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to give you a movie that I like that I know is great. And if you don't like it, I don't care because I still know it's good. Okay. And so I have a pretty strong short list here. And I really want to try and give you something that's fairly recent because I know, you know, if, if it's fairly recent, you haven't seen it. True. So, wow. Okay. 
I'm going to suck it up and go with this one because this has been on my watch list for a while for you. We're going to go with the 2015 Oscar-nominated Best Picture nominee, Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I have not seen it. I've heard good things. I remember watching the Oscars that year, and it won Oscar after Oscar after it's Oscar. One of the technical Oscars. All the yeah. technical stuff. Yeah, yeah. So Fury Road, right? Yes. That is um, uh, Charlize Theron. Was yes, that one? she's yeah. fantastic in that. Yeah. And Tom Hardy as Mad Max. I saw um, something on Twitter uh, recently where she was posting a bunch of stuff about how hard it was to, to film that movie. But no, that yeah, looks we'll interesting. talk more about it yeah. next week. There's there's a lot of trivia about it, but uh, do I have to have yeah. seen all the other Mad Max movies no. before no. that? It's I, a it 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 is of those movies, like it is of the world, and in a way, it's a sequel. But you do not need any context coming into it. All you need to know, like you don't even really need to know anything. Uh, other than it's like a post-apocalyptic world, which right. I know is not your favorite genre, mm-hmm. but that is not a huge selling point of this movie. What I will suggest is please, please, please watch it in one straight sitting. Don't stop halfway through to get up and use the restroom or say, I'm going to watch half today and half tomorrow. No, it is a little on the long yeah. side. I think it runs a little over two hours, but the pacing is such a pivotal and important part of this movie. You absolutely have to give yourself enough time to watch it all in one sitting. I always do. So I would definitely do that. Okay. The, okay. Uh, of the series, I think I've seen The Road Warrior like 40 years ago when it came out. Um, but that's it. I haven't seen any of the other movies. So I'm kind Don't of even worry about it. Just going into, come it, into it Yep. Come into it fresh. That's what it I'm going to do. Yep. It, there's no references okay. to the old movies. There's no nothing. You don't need okay. to know anything about it whatsoever. And part of what I really, really like about this movie is it's there's not a lot of dialogue it's very visual and less less um dialogue heavy it it really lets the the action speaks for itself and uh yeah i would say uh turn the volume up well i know you got little kids but Mm. turn the volume up as much as you can uh turn the lights down uh watch it on your big screen i really hope you like it but if you don't you're wrong uh, and we'll talk about it next week. We will. Well, like you said, it's a post-apocalyptic movie, so you know how I feel about those. But who knows? Maybe this is one I actually like. Uh, if you have any suggestions for topics uh, for us to do, for Derek and I to do, make sure you reach out to us on Twitter at Amaron underscore DM for Derek and at C. McBrien for me, or go over to head, head over to popgoesyourworld.com. That's our website with all of our contact information. You can send us an email. Until next week, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 